we will be able to make the money in good use for the needy. You're listening to the news on RTHK. AM, FM and live online. This is Radio 3. Good morning and welcome to Tuesday's Money Talk on Radio 3. It's 8.03 in Hong Kong on the 22nd of November. I'm Peter Lewis and here are the day's business and finance headlines. Mainland China has reported its first deaths from the COVID virus in six months and cases rose to 26,824 nationwide on Monday near April's peak. Authorities have tightened restrictions in cities including Guangzhou and Shoujiaochuang, the capital of Harbei province. Shoujiaochuang has been a test case for easing China's zero-COVID control measures and had suspended public testing booths and stopped requiring negative test results to access public transport. But now city officials have done a U-turn, reopening the testing booths, suspending schools, locking down universities and asking residents to stay at home for five days while a mass testing is undertaken in six districts. And Beijing's Chaoyang district urged residents to remain at home yesterday as cases hit a more than one year high in the capital. Authorities warned on Monday that Beijing was facing its most severe test of the COVID-19 pandemic so far. In economic news, China kept its benchmark lending rate, the loan prime rate unchanged in November for a third consecutive month. The one-year LPR is at 3.65%. The five-year LPR, the reference rate for mortgages, remains at 4.3%. Both were in line with expectations. And consumer prices in Hong Kong rose by 1.8% year-on-year in October, easing sharply from a seven-year high of 4.4% in September excluding the effects of the government's one-off relief measures. Underlying inflation in October grew by 1.7% from a year ago, slightly lower than the 1.8% recorded in September. The prices of electricity, gas and water jumped by over 13% year-on-year in October. Housing prices, though, slowed, only rising 0.1%, and costs for food, utilities and transport all slowed as well. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Lashar, Asia Chief Economist at BBVA Research, and Nitin Dialdas, Chief Investment Officer at Mandarin Capital. With a view from Japan, it's Nick Smith, Japan Strategist at CLSA. The United States is preparing for the Thanksgiving Day celebrations on Thursday, which is often a precursor for lacklustre trading in the markets. And then Black Friday starts the next day, which is the biggest shopping day of the year for retailers across the country. US markets will be closed Thursday and open for a half-day session on Friday. On Wall Street yesterday, US shares started the holiday week lower. The S&P 500 shed 0.4% to 3,950 The Dow fell 45 points, or 0.1%, to 33,700. And the Nasdaq Composite fell 1.1% to end the day at 11,025. Energy stocks retreated on concerns about China ramping up COVID restrictions. Shares of Walt Disney jumped over 6%. That's the most in almost two years after the entertainment company brought back former leader Bob Iger to replace his successor Bob Chapek as chief executive officer in a surprise move following a string of disappointing results for the company. 
Shares of electric vehicle maker Tesla slumped almost 7% on Monday to its lowest level since July 2020 after the electric car maker said it will recall vehicles in the United States. European stocks also slipped on China COVID fears. The stock 600 index closed 0.1% lower. Similar story for the FTSE 100, which was also down 0.1%. The Hang Seng index slumped the most in two weeks, losing 337 points, or 1.9%, to 17,656, wiping out half of last week's 3.8% gain. The tech index fell 3%. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite was down 0.4% at 3,085. Stocks relating to reopening and technology dropped the most. China Southern Airlines fell 4.6%. Casino operator Sands China sank almost 8%, while Wynn Macau tumbled almost 6%. Metran and JD.com both declined around 5%. And it was a roller coaster day in the oil markets. Oil prices fell to their lowest level in 10 months after reports that the OPEC producer group was weighing an increase in outputs. Brent crude oil fell as much as 6%, but then recovered nearly all of those losses after Saudi officials denied those reports. Brent crude oil settled 0.2% lower at $87.45 a barrel. Gold is slightly lower at $1,739 an ounce. The US 10-year Treasury bond yield is up one basis point at 3.84%. The US dollar index rallied 0.8%, but it is down 3.4% so far in November, on pace for the worst month since July 2020. The euro this morning trading at $1.02.5. The buck's 1.3% firmer against the Japanese yen at 142.15. Sterling is 0.6% weaker at $1.18 and 9 Hong Kong dollars and 22 cents. Onshore Chinese yuan weakened 0.6% to a two-week low of 7.164 yuan per US dollar as lockdowns spread across China. And cryptocurrencies renewed their slide Monday in the wake of the FTX collapse. Bitcoin, the largest crypto by market capitalization, has fallen 5% over the past 24 hours to trade at $15,700 per coin. And it was worth $69,000 just a year ago. And if we take a look around Asia-Pacific stock markets in Australia, the SX200 right now is up 0.6%. So is the Nikkei 225 in Japan. The Cosby in South Korea down a quarter of a percent. And futures markets pointing for no change in the Hang Seng at the open this morning. Times 8.10, now two guests for you this morning over in our Queensway studio. First of all, Lashar, Asia Chief Economist at BBVA. Morning, Shark. Morning, Peter. And also with us, Nitin Dialdas, Chief Investment Officer at Mandarin Capital. Morning to you, Nitin. Good morning, Peter. Uh, let me start with that economic data um, out of China. The LPR left unchanged in November for a third consecutive month. One-year LPR, 3.65%. The five-year, which is the reference rate for mortgages, uh, remains at 4.3%. Um, Shark, the People's Bank of China did warn last week, didn't they, that inflation may accelerate on the mainland. So is this the reason why they're leaving things unchanged at the moment? Uh, yes, I think that's uh, definitely one of the reasons why they want to keep this uh, lending rate uh, 
uh, at the current level. But uh, in addition, I think uh, uh, if you look at the uh, exchange rate, I think still the U.S. dollar becomes stronger and stronger, and they have a further pressure on RMB exchange rates. That's why the uh, central bank, they don't want to uh, lower this uh, interest rate further so that that could cause a further weakening of the RMB that even could could cause uh, more capital outflows. I think they are still aware of this kind of the financial risk. But at the same time, if you look at the economy in China, we have seen this, uh, I like to say the weak October data. Okay, so in that case, uh, if China they can, well, they want to maintain a decent growth rate, I don't think that they should uh, raise the interest rate further, and if especially for this uh, uh, property property market, uh, now so far the investment in this property market has down by thirty percent, sales also down by thirty percent to uh, uh, by now. So I think that's why. Uh, to some degree, I like to say these uh, central banks, their interest rate policy has been constrained both by both uh, uh, exchange rate concern and also on uh, growth concern. So is that going to keep them from changing monetary policy? People had been hoping there might be a bit more easing of monetary policy, but based on what you're saying, it sounds like the more likely outcome is they're going to leave things unchanged for a while. Yes, I agree. I think that maybe this kind of uh, uh, policy will continue for a longer time. What do you think, Nita? They've announced quite a few measures recently, haven't they? Uh, both for the property market, uh, trying to uh, sort of ease pressures on the property sector. Also, some relaxation of COVID restrictions, although they seem to have been reintroduced over the last couple of days. So is this, are they waiting to see what happens with, with these measures? Yeah, I think so. I think they'll wait and see. But um, if there's bias on any side, it's going to be on the easing side for sure. And I think, as you see, exports are starting to decline a little bit. Mm. Um, so if you want to start stimulating some ex- export, obviously a weaker currency always helps. Um, you've got inflation issues aren't so huge in China. It's it's not been as bad as, say, They've got Europe. inflation on the p- purchasing side, haven't yeah, they? And you've, yeah, exactly. Um, so for me, I think, if, um, if anything, this is just maybe a temporary lull, and then they might just ease... Um, at the next meeting or the meeting after that. We did, we did have that weak trade data, didn't we, from October, both exports and imports slowed. Does this suggest that um, China's now being affected by slowing global demand and that's also going to be a major drag on growth going forward? Um, I think it's slowing global demand, but also quite a lot of it is a shift out of China, uh, certainly on the export side. So with the fact that China is still one of the, it's one of the only countries closed, um, people have shifted a lot of their production out of China into places like Vietnam, Bangladesh, mm. and all these other places, which had happened pre-COVID. And then COVID saw people go back into China because it was just easy to get everything from one place. But now you're starting to see that mo- uh, movement out again and it, and quite a uh, quick pace. And that's been on the fact that the rest of the world is open, China is closed. Mm. Um, so I think certainly on the uh, trade side, there is a lot of food for thought on how they're going to play that. Shark, do, do you think China's economy is, is approaching a turning point? It hasn't been a great year, has it? Do you think, are, are you seeing signs of um, some recovery going into next year at all? Uh, I think it depends on Chinese uh, policy against this COVID. Uh, if they are going to 
uh, further make adjustment to this COVID policy. I mean, not only just uh, announce these policies at the central government level, but uh, at the local government level, they really put into this kind of uh, policies into practice. Uh, I think that in that case, China, they are going to have some kind of the recovery next year. But of course, I think it's a big challenge for China to implement that one. When they want to lose these restrictions, they find it's very difficult to to do that in the orderly way. Uh, so that's the most uh, important challenge to Chinese economy. Of course, at the same time, China need to uh, manage this uh, property market problem. So I always think uh, this problem is very serious, at least over the medium term. Uh, so far, we we. We're happy to see that uh, the authorities, they make adjustment and they encourage bank sectors to, to some degree, I like to say, they try to bail out some of the developers. I think that's uh, uh, encouraging development in that front. But uh, as I said, this is a very complex task. So they need to solve this one well. If they do these things well, I think that next year, China, they are going to uh, have a very good recovery. Yeah. Uh. Nitin, what do you make of these latest COVID developments on the mainland? We've got um, uh, Shoujiao Chuang, uh, the capital of Harbei province. That was a sort of test case, wasn't it, for easing the control measures. They'd suspended public testing, but now they've done a complete sort of 180 degree uh, U-turn on that. We're seeing some tightening in Beijing as well. What, what message are we supposed to be taking about what is the, what is the plan really for, for COVID restrictions on the mainland? Um, as, as you said, it's very mixed messages at the moment. But I think the reality is they're not quite ready yet to completely ease things off because the vaccines or, you know, or the population, whatever it is that is worrying them, they're just not ready to just let go. Um, the problem with that also is, as you've seen in the rest of the world, as it's opened up, yes, you've had a spike in cases, but then after that, because the immunity's built up, it starts coming down. We've not really had that in China yet because they've tried mm. to be so protective. Um, so at some point when they do finally ease these COVID restrictions, there will be a bit of spike. And the question is, can they handle that? And I think they've realized that there will be a spike. And then they've got to start testing the hospital systems. You've got to test the vaccine levels. Um, and I, at the moment, I don't think they're quite coming up to scratch. And, you know, building a facility that can house 250,000 people in Guangzhou, that sends a message that you're going to go into some sort of lockdown and put people into facilities again. Um, it's hardly sending a message out there that you're going to fully open up. And so I think at the moment, they are still very much erring on the side of caution. It's sort of, um, it's difficult, isn't it? Because even if they do want to open up now and follow the rest of the world, they've got to be careful because they've still got a very low vaccine rate for the elderly so that there is going to be risks um, if this starts ripping through the population. For sure. Um, and that's, you know, given a country that can order its people to do certain things, I'm surprised they haven't ordered the elderly to get vaccinated. Mm. Um, and I think that's what they have to do is whether now if it's a case that they just don't have confidence in the vaccines that they are producing at the moment and they're waiting for an MNRA to come out in February or March or whether it's a case that they just I mean I can't think of any other reason but I do think there should be some sort of policy out there that they have to force the elderly to get vaccinated and they've got to start opening up because it's hurting China in a big way economically um, now the other argument is is does um, Z really care whether it's handing them economically? 
but it is. And the fact is, if they want to start, you know, moving forward on the economic side, they need to start thinking of how they're going to get out of this COVID situation. And I'm sure he does care about the economic side. But, but Shark, there seems to be some mixed messaging going on, doesn't it? Because we had the State Council last week uh, urge local authorities to avoid irresponsible loosening of COVID-19 measures. Then we get a commentary yesterday in the People's Daily saying China must end its excessive one-size-fits-all approach. I, I suspect that local conf- uh, officials must be in quite a lot of confusion now about how to implement the zero-COVID policy. Yeah, I think that's uh, for many local authorities. Uh, so controlling, effectively controlling this uh, COVID and at the same time boost the economy to use the minimum uh, cost is uh, mission impossible, okay? They don't know mm. how to do it. They only know uh, either they, they will control this one, uh, control this uh, COVID fully or they uh, boost the economy allow this uh, uh, COVID to spread. Okay, so it's a very difficult task for the, all these uh, local authorities. Uh, I, the central government side, I fully agree with uh, Nitin. I think, uh, uh, in fact, that China, they want to organize an orderly retreat from their previous uh, defense. But unfortunately, uh, it's not easy task. Okay, they're not well prepared in terms of the vaccination, in terms of this uh, enough uh, medical capacity to deal with this spike. Uh, so that's why we have seen the policy. Uh, I like to say it's always like the Chinese other policies, uh, two steps further and one step back, uh, even sometimes a 1.5 step back this time. <laughs> uh, so I think these things will, will, will last for quite a while. Uh, I talked to other people. Uh, many of us believe that uh, from now to they fully lift all the restrictions. Maybe we need to wait for another six to nine months. So okay. what's that going to do for the economy in the meantime, and in particular, domestic demand? If we get a, a spike in cases and then we go back to hard lockdowns in various districts, that's going to really hammer domestic demand further, isn't it? Yes, definitely. I think uh, during this time, uh, the, the economy will suffer. Uh, now, in many places, uh, we see that even they lift some of uh, restrictions, but people also feel confused. Uh, some people feel fear. They don't need, they don't dare to go to the street to consume as people, mm. uh, many uh, policymakers expected. So I think that's a very hard time for the moment. Yeah. What does this mean for the markets? I mean, uh, it's, it's having an impact all over the world, isn't it? In the US, uh, they're watching this closely. The oil markets are reacting to it. Uh, we saw another slump in the Hang Seng uh, yesterday. It's wiped out now nearly half of last week's 3.8% gain in just one day. What are investors supposed to take of this? Um, they've got to be extremely cautious. I mean, the rally that we had in the Hang Seng, actually, if you look at it from a technical basis, it was almost a perfect technical rally um, of extremely sold uh, conditions. Um, it hasn't changed the trend. It is still in a downtrend. So, And we're still in very much in a bear market. So investors who want to play China and Hong Kong still have to be uh, pretty cautious. Having said that, um, markets tend to trade three to six months ahead of what reality is going to happen because uh, it's quite a predictive uh, mechanism. And I do think, as Shark just said, you know, six to nine months, you might start seeing the opening of China. So while I'm not necessarily ready to call 100% that we're at the bottom, I do think there'll be a leg lower. But let's see how deep this leg is. But I do think we are starting now to form a bottom and we should start seeing some sort of rallies in the next few months, certainly in Hong Kong and China. 
So the message really for investors is you've got to take a long-term view, isn't it? And, and particularly if you're an individual investor, um, you can't try and trade this market and time this market. Uh, you've really got to take a long-term view on the economy, on the valuation of stocks. Yeah, and actually valuations are very, very reasonable. Um, let's, again, we've got to see the full effects of what all these COVID policies have on each of the companies. But if you just take the raw data at where we're currently sitting, the valuations are attractive. And now it just needs that little bit of good news. And I think you will see quite a strong rally um, in Hong Kong and China. Mm. Um, Shark, what do you make of the trade data out of South Korea? I raise this because South Korean exports, they're often seen, aren't they, as a sort of a bellwether for global trade and then also uh, the global economy declined much more than expected in October, down almost 17% in the first 20 days of November. What do you make of that? I think that means the recession is coming, okay? Uh, because uh, now many people believe that uh, with uh, United States and other major central banks continue to hike interest rates, uh, at the end of the day, we are going to have some kind of recession. So now we can see that globally, uh, this kind of the demand has slowed down. Yeah, I think that the trade data in South Korea approve this one. Uh, I don't know whether this recession is uh, very serious or just a very shallow one, but definitely I think uh, we, we need to be prepared for a recession. Yeah. And, and what was particularly striking uh, was exports to China dropped over 28%. Yeah, so if you look at the China's economic performance, it's not a surprise to, to us at all. But of course, for China, they have another thing is, uh, uh, in the past, the China, uh, many, uh, China uh, manufacturing, uh, they have been doing these uh, stocking things, especially on semiconduct. Now these uh, kind of uh, things uh, stopped. Okay, they have already uh, enough stocks for this uh, semiconduct. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's why this, uh, the, the trade to China has slowed down. That's uh, another reason why we see such a decline uh, from uh, South Korea trade data. Listen, what do you think? Yeah, um, as, as Shark said, there's enough... Uh, supply in China at the moment, so they didn't need to import. But I think, again, it's also a sign of the fact that the domestic economy, the consumers are just not consuming as much as they used to. So you've got that double whammy, and um, it's going to hurt those trades. I think if you take out the China numbers, the export numbers in South Korea were not as, were not terrible. Mm -hmm. So it really is very much a China play again. And, yeah, it's going to affect the world. I mean, there was... If you, I mean, if you take it from, what, 1999 right through to 2020, there was a big reliance on the world and going into China and getting a lot of, you know, plays out of China. But last couple of years, that slowed down, and now we're starting to see it reverse. So it's a question of seeing how all these countries and companies start uh, adjusting their um, tactics and trying to see whether they start selling to the rest of the world again or wait for China to open up and go back into them. We had a lot of discussion, didn't we, at the APEX Summit over the weekend um, about trade and trying to strengthen uh, free and open trade and investment in, in the Asia-Pacific region. What did you make of um, what they announced there? And did you see any particular signs uh, that uh, measures are being taken to try and strengthen some of these trade agreements? There seem to be. Um, I think, you know, you got a lot of handshakes, a lot of good uh, will a lot of good rhetoric that came out of it you know people saying the right things but the proof is always in the pudding right it's all well and good when they're in front of each other and saying they're going to do this and that but they've got to go back and actually now execute and that's always the hardest part 
I think there is willingness. Uh, it's now just a question of, as I said, execution. And John Lee was there telling good stories about Hong Kong. Um, and he came away very positive that uh, businesses in Thailand, in Singapore, Indonesia that he spoke to um, are keen to invest um, in Hong Kong. Do you think um, Hong Kong is back now and, and companies are seeing those opportunities? Nearly. We're, we're nearly back. We're, we're not quite there yet. I think let's ease up the last bit of restrictions and then we could start saying we're starting to come back. But again, we're behind the eight ball. We've had the rest of the world open up a lot earlier than us, a lot of people focusing. And it's not like people who start to make a decision going that they're going to go to Singapore overnight are going to start changing and shift to Hong Kong. That, that takes time. So it will take time for companies to come back. It does need the last bits of restrictions to ease. Um, and then we, you know, we need the bodies in Hong Kong to start really supporting and putting their money behind their mouths. Okay, well, thank you both very much. That was Nissan Elders, Chief Investment Officer at Mandarin Capital, and Lashar, Asia Chief Economist at BBVA. Eight twenty-seven on the phone from Tokyo, Japan, is Nick Smith, Japan Strategist at CLSA. Morning, Nick. Hi, Nick. Can you hear me? Certainly, certainly can. Okay, great. Um, let me get your thoughts on a couple of bits of economic data we've had out of uh, Japan recently. First of all, uh, inflation in Japan hit a 40-year high at the same time as um, GDP shrank, surprisingly, 1.2% in the third quarter. What do you make of this data? Yeah, I, mean, I don't think the uh, the GDP number should have been a surprise. I mean, the poor dears and their ivory towers in um uh, the, the economists, I think, um, haven't seen what the analysts have been seeing, was, which was that profits were up 5.5% year on year, but down quarter on quarter, for the very obvious reason that uh, we got hit by uh, COVID. So it was a surprise to me that uh, COVID numbers went up and you saw them going up and you went, who cares, everyone's vaccinated. And yet that wave that, um, that, that peaked out at the, the end of August uh, was actually the most deadly so far. So you listen to the, the to foreigners and they say, oh, these silly uh, Japanese, they keep wearing their masks. <laughs> and in this case, it, it proved to be right. And of course, they didn't have the million dead that the US had. I think um, inflation shouldn't have been a surprise either. Obviously, you'd seen the, uh, the Tokyo numbers first. Tokyo was up 0.7 percentage points month on month. So of course, uh, the, the uh, country went up by, it turned out the same amount. Um, I think we are moving towards a quite possibly uh, wage price spiral. I mean, not a, a dramatic one by, uh, by Western standards, but uh, I think wages are uh, about to rise as a result of the incredibly tight uh, labour market. Um, the, uh, the rest of, of pricing has been holding on by its fingernails for uh, decades now and finally just can't hold it any longer. So mm -hmm. things are starting to move. And a lot of focus isn't there on the Bank of Japan. I get the feeling that um, ordinary people in Japan are starting to feel that the Bank of Japan has got this wrong and it's not only dragging down uh, the popularity of Kuroda-san but also the Prime Minister as well. I think that's absolutely right. So there's a lot of piffle being written about um, the Unification Church uh, uh, there is criticism from the opposition, and uh, of course the opposition has, has not said boo to a goose for, uh, for an incredibly long time. And finally they've got something to complain about. 
I think that the the public will have forgotten about it very quickly. But really, the uh, the issue was the uh, the rising inflation, and the rising inflation is quite unacceptable. The government had uh, printed money to drive up um, to drive up prices without a plan to uh, to get wages mm-hmm. up. So, and it was particularly uh, 24 uh, February the uh, the Ukrainian system that uh, situation that uh, caused uh, global uh, inflation to. Uh, to accelerate more than expected, but um, but that's left uh, wages a long way behind uh, prices in Japan, and I think there is a, a social contract there. Okay, well, very very quickly because we're running out of time. If if interest rates do rise in Japan, um, does that have a big impact on Japan? Given that they're so low to to start with, a lot of talk about maybe rising interest rates. Rising interest rate um, interest rates, I think, will be. Uh, will be rising from the beginning of, uh, of April. Uh, I, the most exposed companies are the uh, electric power companies, uh, to extent also the, uh, the rail companies. But Japan is so absolutely awash with, uh, with cash. They'll, they'll probably uh, shrug and say, good, a little bit more interest on my, uh, my cash deposits. Okay, Nick. Thank you very much. Sadly, we've run out of time there. But that's Nick Smith, Japan strategist at CLSA in Tokyo. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. And in Japan, the Nikkei 225 up right now three quarters of a percent. It looks like the Hang Seng is going to open unchanged later on this morning. Do please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Coming up after the news, back chats with Jim Gord and Ada Wong. The weather forecast for today, cloudy, occasional showers, few thunderstorms later. Maximum temperature about 24 degrees. There is a strong monsoon signal in force. It's going to be windier with showers, more frequent at times tomorrow and Thursday. Temperature right now 23 degrees, 87% relative humidity. Times 8:32. Here's Todd Harding with the half-hour news. Rescue workers in Indonesia have worked through the night to search for survivors of a devastating earthquake. More than 160 people were killed by the quake in West Java province. The epicenter was near the town of Chanjur, where health workers have been treating many wounded people in the open after the local medical facilities were damaged. Elkan Rahimov is from the International Red Cross in Indonesia. The most important now is a rescue to reach out to the people who are trapped and therefore volunteers of the Indonesian Red Cross during the first aid uh, is provided, uh, health uh, needs are met, also emergency shelter is provided where is needed. But again, it's very important first aid is to rescue, reach out to those trapped, and then in coming two days we'll see what are the biggest needs. Hong Kong's consumers will find out today how much they're likely to pay for electricity next year amid warnings of sharp increases in tariffs as global energy prices soar. Executives of CLP and Hong Kong Electric will make presentations at LegCo's environment panel. Ahead of the meeting, CLP said it was handing out $200 million in subsidies to ease the burden on grassroots families. Its chief corporate development officer is Quince Chong. Caring for the underprivileged and the community as well as the youngster have always been, you know, our core values. We come up with different programs at different time, which we think is important to meet the evolving needs of the community. And we believe the fuel cost subsidy program will be able to offer a substantial sum of money to alleviate the financial burden of the underprivileged families. And we hope that we will be able to make the money in good use for the needy. Star Ferry has applied to the government to double its fares as it struggles to operate its loss-making cross-harbour services. It also wants to scupper free rides for the elderly, as Wendy Wong reports. 
The ferry operator has proposed to raise its adult fare to up to $6.40 for each weekday ride between Yuan Chai and Chimsa Choi, as well as its route between Central and Chimsa Choi. According to a document sent to Lechko, Star Ferry also wants to raise the cost of weekend and public holiday trips to $8.40. The ferry operator has additionally requested to scrap his free rides for the elderly and replace the plan with the government's $2 subsidised trips. Officials are seeking lawmakers' views on the application. You're listening to the news on RTHK.